Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi, Alan. Hey, Darren. Well, we have a regular news episode scheduled for today, but of course, COVID-19 is going to be central to everything that we will discuss. We will begin with the World Health Organization. Next, I'll indulge with my fascination with the concept of mask diplomacy, and then we'll finish closer to home with a couple of COVID-19 related issues relating to Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Okay, well, let's begin with the WHO. As I'm sure all of our listeners know, last week, President Donald Trump ordered a freeze on US funding to the organization for a period of 60 days. The US is the largest donor to the organization, and the loss of this kind of revenue, if made permanent, would of course be devastating for the organization and to the millions around the world who benefit from its day-to-day operations. Trump's criticism is that the WHO too eagerly promoted China's talking points in the early stages of the pandemic, which he labelled disinformation, and argued that COVID-19 could have been contained and many lives saved if the WHO had conducted a proper investigation. He said that the WHO had, quote, failed in its basic duty. The reaction to this announcement was swift. The Democratic Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, said that such a decision might be illegal and she would oppose it, while internationally the move was widely condemned by a diverse range of actors, from states like Germany to the United Nations to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Alan, acknowledging that neither of us is anything remotely close to an expert on global public health, can I just start with your reaction to these events? Not being an expert in global public health doesn't seem to impede anyone these days from having (laughs) views on everything, so we might as well be in it. Indeed. Look, just think about this for a moment. We're in the middle of a global pandemic. We need all the expert help we can get, and we need to use the best global networks we have to manage it. Information has to flow easily around the world, and there is only one such network, the WHO. It certainly has problems, like all the UN multilateral agencies, even during this crisis, it's done some things poorly and some things that some members disagree with, but it doesn't stand outside international politics. It's part of them. Through the World Health Assembly, the 194 members of WHO approve the budget, choose the leader and set the priorities deals are done because that's the way the members want it. So, look, whatever you think about the speed with which they declared a pandemic or the adjectives used about Chinese policy at various times, it's not in our interests to see WHO diverted from its purposes at this point in the crisis and used for um, political deflection. What do you think? Yes, I agree, Alan. And I think your point about the WHO being part of international politics is central. The WHO stands accused by Trump of being too deferential to the Chinese government. But as we've discussed previously, the Chinese Communist Party is a paranoid actor and they are very quick to respond to any threat to their legitimacy. 
So if we put ourselves in the organization's shoes back in January, and I'm imagining here, your number one priority is to get your people into China on the ground. And that means you're going to say or not say anything to make that happen. And then even once you arrive, it only becomes clearer to you that any criticism is going to see the Chinese side shut you out completely. So I could see myself easily making the judgment that some cooperation from China, the gathering of some information would be better than none, would be better than outright hostility. I could see myself making the judgment that public health is better served in the context of a pandemic by doing things that may well harm the credibility of my organisation, perhaps permanently. It's a case of you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, since in hindsight it looks like the WHO's independence was compromised, or at least that's the accusation. Another way I think of thinking about the question is, let's say the outbreak was in another powerful member state like Trump's United States. In that counterfactual, do we think the WHO would have behaved any differently? Can you imagine how receptive Trump himself would have been to WHO officials snooping around and doing their investigative work in the early weeks of an outbreak? I mean, of course not. We have already seen how the president downplayed the impacts in the early weeks and the fact that he seems to view the virus through the lens of his own political fortunes and its impact on the stock market. So I don't find it hard to imagine at all that the WHO would need to lavish praise on Trump, especially via Twitter, to get the White House's cooperation. And in terms of Trump's attack on the who now, I mean, this is a perfect storm of domestic politics. He's facing an election amid a tanking economy and a horribly inept early response. And so he needs someone, anyone to blame. And it seems clear now that a combination of the WHO and China are his chosen targets. Okay, well, let's put to one side the question of, of whether the US system itself will constrain Trump in this instance, and imagine that he is able to carry this out, perhaps after winning re-election later this year. Now, we've talked previously about how the rest of the world might be able to respond to the president's order-trampling tendencies. The main example recently was in the realm of trade and the WTO. Listeners may recall that there was a plan proposed late last year for a parallel legal structure of like-minded states that includes Australia to replace the paralysed WTO appellate mechanism for resolving trade disputes. And that mechanism was recently approved. So in terms of our government's reaction to Trump's WHO decision, Prime Minister Scott Morrison, who has previously been critical of the WHO, said that he had sympathised with Trump's decision, but that Australia would not do anything similar on account of the WHO's vital work in the Pacific. On Insiders this past weekend, Foreign Minister Payne called for some kind of independent review mechanism that, as I understood it, would focus on the early response in China and by the WHO. I noticed that Jeff Raby, a former Australian ambassador to China, now in the private sector, whose public writings generally are quite favourable towards Beijing, wrote an op-ed saying that Director General Tedros should resign. Former Foreign Minister Julie Bishop said on the Today Show that the WHO had been, quote, missing in action. And I'll add another op-ed by Alexander Downer, another foreign minister, which was also critical. Alan, what do you make of the foreign minister's call for an independent review? And is there a need for the WHO head to fall on his sword, deservedly or not, as a matter of politics when pressure is coming from a key member state? On the foreign minister's proposed review, I think that's a useful initiative. I, uh, in fact, said something similar in the East Asia Forum uh, last week. Maurice Payne is calling for 
and I'm quoting here, an independent review mechanism that would look at the genesis of the virus, the approaches to dealing with it and addressing it, about the openness with which the information was shared, about interactions with the World Health Organization. That's all important, not least in ensuring that we're better prepared for the next pandemic whenever it comes, and that mm. may well be something that's both more contagious and more lethal. But a review like that can only succeed, in fact, a review like that can only begin with the agreement of all the major parties. Mm. So the objective can't be to attribute blame because the Chinese won't be in that and we won't get what we need out of such a review, which I think is very significant. As for the demands that Director-General Tedros should fall on his sword, as you say, I think this is precisely the wrong time to destabilise the organisation. The problems that the Americans and others see are just not going to be resolved by the departure of one person. And reports from those who know the WHO, which I don't, suggest that he's in fact played an important reforming role there within the inevitable constraints that any UN agency head has to operate under. What about you? I agree now is not the time for change, though my political instincts tell me that Tedros might need to resign once the crisis appears to be under control or is under control. Politics isn't fair and the question of rehabilitating the reputation of those who are angry with the organisation is a live one, I think. But my question for the Trump administration is, what exactly is their strategy here? What would they actually like the WHO to do? So I think the brilliance of Foreign Minister Payne's proposal, other than taking your advice clearly, Alan, is that it actually asks for something. Politics might prevent it from ever happening, but to me, our government has done the White House a bit of a favour by giving them something to ask for themselves, by giving them a pathway to climb down from Trump's bluster, and perhaps even, maybe, a pathway to reforms that would improve the response next time. Anyway, we can't move on without reconsidering the implications for great power politics. I've, of course, seen the argument that the US withdrawal here will only create space for the PRC to move in and further cement its leadership, or perhaps control over the organisation. Others argue that China's early failings, as well as continued controversies regarding, for example, the actual number of cases, after all, we saw deaths in Wuhan revised up 50% last week, suggest that leading the community of nations in public health will be quite challenging. Alan, do you see a model of global health leadership when you look around the world right now, either in practice or in theory? Look, the question you have to ask is, if not who, who? <laughs> to deal with global health problems, you obviously need universal membership. Viruses don't recognise borders, so you have to have an organisation that involves states like Vanuatu and South Sudan, as well as China and the US and Germany. That's one thing. You need medical specialists with experience across the world. You need to be able to hear the voices of all the member states in some democratic plenary like the World Health Assembly. Mm. Uh, you can't expect members to make their own health sovereignty subject to the organisation's rules. So it's never going to be in a position of requiring states to do something so whatever you can do to increase WHO's efficiency and responsiveness, in my view, you, you're left with something that looks pretty much 
like what we've already got. So you may as well make the most of it. That's my view anyway. And look, it's worth keeping the size of the WHO in perspective too. You sort of get a sense from some of the commentary that people think of this as some sort of global megalith. I read somewhere during the week that the WHO's budget is $8.8 billion Australian, which is not much compared with the $104 billion of the Australian Health Department alone. Mm. So this just isn't an all-powerful global bureaucracy. How do you see it? Anything you've seen in this crisis to change your mind on the trends we've discussed in the past? Yeah, look, all major powers influence multilateral institutions in ways to suit their interests. One of my favourite findings from political science uh, is that the United States has historically used multilateral institutions, and the example is UNICEF, as well as its own foreign aid program to bribe temporary members of the UN Security Council. And I'll post a link to the paper uh, in the show notes for those who are interested. And there are also studies where the data suggests that likewise happens with World Bank projects and IMF loans. So to me, what makes the prospect of Chinese leadership of such institutions different is the set of interests that China is trying to protect, given that all countries will protect their own interests. I've said before that the CCP cares above all about its domestic political legitimacy. Now, every government cares about its legitimacy, and you would expect even democratic governments to do what they can to hide scandals and mistakes. But it's the scale of the effort put in by Beijing to protect itself that, for me, is different, for me, is much larger. And so, in the case of COVID-19, a robust and decisive multilateral response, at least in those early stages, was precluded by this need to protect itself, by PRC sensitivities. My broader musing is this. Institutions are supposed to facilitate collective action in response to global problems, and they will fail when narrow parochial interests get in the way. And so my conjecture is that Chinese leadership will see more and more of these kinds of collective action failures where parochial concerns neuter an organization's work. Now, I note that this would also be true of the United States under Trump or a Trump-like figure, given he himself is so sensitive as well. Now, this doesn't mean that Chinese leadership cannot achieve success. I mean, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the AIIB, has started well. And I think that's because its domain does not touch upon PRC sensitivities or any other sensitivities. So I do think that the WHO is a bit of a harbinger, but of the limits of Chinese leadership. You know, it can lead responses as long as the process doesn't threaten or destabilise domestic politics inside China. But because there are so many ways that domestic legitimacy could be threatened, overall, that means institutions will be less effective. Do you have any reaction to that, Alan? Those sound to me like the words of a foreign policy realist, Darren. Mm -hmm. All major powers influence multilateral institutions in ways to suit their interests. (laughs) Look, I think that's a really interesting interpretation and I agree with it. I don't quite understand why you think the AIIB doesn't touch PRC sensitivities, but health policy does, though. <laughs> well, that's a conversation for a, for a quieter time, perhaps. So let's move on. I want to move the discussion now to what might be thought of as a new form of statecraft. The term being used to describe it is mask diplomacy. And I'm referring, of course, to shipments of personal protective equipment like masks 
and medical supplies like ventilators to countries that are facing shortages during the crisis. On one level, this might not look that different to the type of humanitarian assistance delivered to victims of natural disasters, but I think there are a couple of key differences that make this a more novel and interesting phenomenon. First, mask diplomacy is a term that is used in Western media to describe Beijing's efforts after the Chinese government had stabilised the outbreak at home and then went on to deliver supplies to other countries. Now, this is despite the fact that China itself was an early recipient of equipment from places like the EU and Japan. And in fact, I went looking for this. The first mention of the term mask diplomacy that I could find online came on the 5th of March, actually on Australia's strategist blog from Aspie. And the author was Yoichi Funibashi. And the post has nothing to do with COVID. It's about American populism in Japan. But the author mentions how the movement of PPE in both directions between China and Japan, and then back again, could build positive bilateral relations between the two countries. Second, some of the key recipients of mask diplomacy are wealthy countries, and Italy and Spain come to mind most prominently. And I think given this is a global crisis, there is much more scrutiny to what is being done. And then third, and most interestingly, it seems clear that China has a specific strategic objective around COVID-19 that is shaping all of its international behaviour at the moment, whether that is mask diplomacy, to propaganda, to disinformation campaigns. That objective is to shift the narrative away from one which focuses on the origins of the virus in Wuhan and the initial missteps by authorities in containing it, towards one in which China's eventual response in locking down the country not only bought the world time to prepare, but represents a significant win maybe for China's authoritarian model of governance that other countries might want to emulate. This effort, of course, has not been consistently successful because of numerous missteps. Think of the faulty equipment that has been provided in some cases. Think of the insistence of the Chinese for effusive praise in providing assistance and think of some of the excellent reporting that identifies those early failures inside China. Plus, of course, you've got the larger strategic dimension of this being seen through the lens of China's rise and global ambitions. So, Alan, of course, the most honourable intentions at least partially motivate most forms of humanitarian assistance. But there are national interests at play, strategic interests that drive the decision-making of all governments. So what Beijing is doing isn't wholly new, but I still find these differences notable and, and very interesting. Alan, do you agree that we should consider mask diplomacy as somewhat novel in either its strategic context or in its execution? Is there anything interesting to you about it? As you're talking, Darren, I was thinking back, and I'm certainly the only person on this podcast old enough to remember it, <laughs> ping pong diplomacy, which was the term used when the Chinese under Mao, after the Cultural Revolution, started re-engaging with the outside world through table tennis matches internationally. So there's a certain rhythm mm. or rhyme there. I don't think it's quite as novel as you do, Darren, except, of course, that as you noted, the, the difference here is that this is a response from the south to the north in the old terms. The novelty lies with China's emphasis on the fact that it can now provide the help all donors use aid for multiple purposes. For Australia, development assistance is the primary objective, but the form in which we give aid and the places to which we direct it are also shaped very much by our own strategic ambitions. You just have to look at the Pacific step up to see that. 
I think for me what is different is that those strategic interests are so evident and so directed to the present rather than building long-term goodwill. But anyway, you know, should Australian foreign policy practitioners be learning anything from this episode then? Well, maybe the enduring usefulness of aid for influence at a time when our own aid program is being cut everywhere except in the South Pacific. Yeah. What's your take? Look, if I was going to evaluate mass diplomacy through a strategic lens, I'd be asking one, whether it causes political leaders in the host government, in the recipient government, to make policy decisions that they wouldn't otherwise make that favour the donor's interests. Or second, whether it builds goodwill among the general public or perhaps particular constituencies or elites that will feed through the political system and cause favourable policies in the future. On the first question, aside from some vaguely nauseating platitudes such as what we saw from the Serbian Prime Minister... I haven't seen yet any concrete policy decisions to benefit China. If mask diplomacy tipped a government over the line into accepting Huawei into the telecommunications networks, for example, that would be something. But the news out of the United Kingdom suggests that it might be doing the exact opposite. On the second question about the public, I don't know. My guess is that the peoples of the world are focused inwardly on their own efforts to contain the virus and manage the economic and social crisis that it is creating and are probably paying less attention to the high politics of mask diplomacy. So it's interesting to me, but maybe not having that much impact out there in the world. All right, well, let's uh, round for home and then focus on Australia for a minute. I'm going to post in the show notes a link to DFAT's organization chart, which to their credit is is always published on the website. So you can see where all the members of, of the senior executive service sit. And I took a look at it late last week, and I was quite taken aback by how much the April version of the organization chart has changed since the March version. There are these new gray nodes on the flow chart, which represent newly created positions relating to DFAT's COVID-19 response. Now, I imagine this is likely true across all of government, but as we are a podcast on international affairs, I wanted to to use this opportunity, Alan, to get your perspective on what, from an organisational and from a management perspective, DFAT has had to do in order to meet the needs of government and the Australian people in this crisis. What can you tell us? I think it's great that DFAT publishes its organisation chart on its website. Not all government departments do that. And I think it's even more remarkable and possibly a reflection of the times, Darren, that you've got the time to, to think to yourself, what should I do this afternoon? I'll look at the DFAT organisation chart on it. But I'm glad you did, because it's really, when you pointed it out to me, I also went and had a look at it, and it is really interesting. There's no doubt about the scale of the impact that the coronavirus has had on the Australian public service broadly, and on DFAT in particular. I'm certain I'm really certain that there's been nothing so testing for the department in the past 70 years. Mm. It's not just the scale of the policy challenge when you think about it. I'm in a huge consular job getting all those Australians back from overseas, dealing with the myriad problems of, of Australians overseas. You've had the wholesale recasting of the aid program, uh, particularly in the South Pacific, You've had the problems of every Australian trade exporter and tourism, for which the department's also responsible. Mm. And, of course, you've had the broader international policy issues of where we go next, all at a time when Chinese, American and EU leadership have all been lacking. Overseas posts 
Many of them have been operating under lockdown conditions, but they've been reporting back on the way countries overseas have been responding to the virus in sort of real time in order to support the work of the NSC, which at least until recently was meeting up to three times a week, and also the work of the future-focused national coordination mechanism, I think it's called operating out of PMNC. I also know that DFAT has been engaged in a whole-of-government effort. There are DFAT staff now sort of sitting in Services Australia, helping to organise the call centre work there. You and I have talked about the way this period is going to be transformative for diplomacy as a whole. Like office workers and medical practitioners, I think diplomats are going to find that they can operate more effectively than they ever imagined at a virtual level and that lessons will be learned there. We were talking about the way G20, for example, has been Mm. meeting via Zoom or or Skype or something. And another lesson, I think, is that social media is, is going to be even more important as a means of communication with Australians and for public diplomacy and even for direct contact with government overseas. So this has been a remarkable period of intense change and through it all, DFAT officers are going through the same social restrictions and problems with having their kids home from school as all the rest of it. So I think this period is going to be transformative. Oh, really interesting. Thanks, Alan. My last point It's a quick one. It's about the withdrawal of Australia's ambassador to Indonesia, Gary Quinlan, uh, by the government in recent weeks that arose out of the COVID-19 crisis in that country, at least in some sense. This decision was not well received by Jakarta, apparently, with the Deputy Foreign Minister Mahendra Sirigar quoted in the Australian newspaper as saying the Foreign Minister was, quote, disappointed and that the Australian government's failure to correct media spin that Quinlan was recalled because of Indonesia's inability to handle the public health crisis, you know, sort of lamenting that fact. Remember, of course, that President Widodo was only here a short while ago with glowing things to say about our bilateral relationship. So, Alan, can you just quickly talk us through the dynamics of this situation? Yeah, I thought, I thought that response was surprising uh, from Siriga. Otherwise, the story seems pretty straightforward. Our ambassador to Indonesia, Gary Quinlan, who's an outstanding professional, but he's also um, 69. And I think DFAT was conscious of the advice given to Australians of that age cohort and wanted him to come back home. And I understand the Indonesian government was given all the background. So I'm not quite sure why the Deputy Foreign Minister reacted in that way, except that it seems to underline a sort of an underlying sensitivity and fragility in Jakarta about COVID-19, given the circumstances that we know uh, apply there. I don't think the incident will do lasting damage. I couldn't help, as I sort of read Sirigar's world-weary language, he ended up by saying, this is not the first time and it won't be the last. As wise people say, you don't get to choose your neighbour. And <laughs> I could just hear the echoes of the uh, temporary spats between uh, Jakarta and Canberra that mark the course of our relationship. But as I say, I don't think lasting damage will uh, ensue. Okay, well, let's do our final segment, reading, listening and watching. Alan, what have you got for us this week? 
One of the things that COVID-19 has upended is book launches. Just days after we were all required to socially isolate, I was due to attend the launch in Canberra of an important new book by Dr. Peter Edwards, who's one of our most notable diplomatic historians. It's the first ever biography of Justice Robert Hope, the man who more than any other created the Australian intelligence community as we know it, following the series of royal commissions he conducted for the Whitlam, Fraser and Hawke governments into the Australian agencies. He was the creator, really, of the Office of National Assessments, where I worked, now the uh, Office of National Intelligence. And he had a raft of other substantial achievements in law and education and the protection of our national heritage. Hope's always been one of my uh, public policy heroes. I met him as a young ONA analyst in Washington, and I was very pleased that I was able to persuade Julia Gillard to name the ONA building in Canberra after him. Because of the coronavirus, the biography, which is called Law, Politics and Intelligence, A Life of Robert Hope, hasn't received quite the attention it should have. But I really urge any of our listeners with an interest in Australian intelligence or public policy generally to seek it out. It's published by New South and it's an important contribution to our understanding of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, on the topic of book launches, I did my first ever webinar last week. I don't think it will be my last either. That was hosted by friend of the podcast, Richard Maud, and the Asia Society Policy Institute to launch the latest China Story yearbook, which is a publication released annually by the ANU's Australian Centre on China and the World. Now, I co-authored a chapter for the yearbook and joined other contributors, Jane Golly, who's also a co-editor, and Louisa Lim for a discussion of our essays and how COVID-19 affects our analysis. So I'll post a link to that. But my recommendation is getting away from the world and into film. Recently, I saw the movie Knives Out, which was notable to me because the director, Ryan Johnson, also directed the second of the new Star Wars films, The Last Jedi, which I thought was excellent and might even be the best Star Wars movie ever made. Please don't at me on Twitter for that comment. But he wasn't allowed to do the third, and he was replaced by J.J. Abrams. And in that third movie, all of his great work done in the second movie was undone, which I found deeply disappointing. So this was the film he made instead. And it's really, really good. Very entertaining, but also quite subversive in terms of themes about race and power in modern America. So it's available to stream and I give it my highest recommendation. Okay, well, that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. As always, we want to thank AAA intern Maddie Gordon for her help with research and audio editing, XC Chong for research support, and Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Thank you, and we'll talk to you again soon.